I love a scandal. To watch the world burn and lose their minds after finding out the fine print eliminated another's entitlement. Or an ironic twist where a saint becomes a Satan. I especially love it when this involves those within the third sector. For years the greedy and evil have hidden behind the good name charity for too long. I myself a witness to these wrongdoings, decided to create a podcast to uproot their stories buried just a little too soon in the archive. Uncharitable is a narrative, storytelling podcast about true crimes and questionable practices related to that third sector. So join me, host Odea, as I attempt to smoke out the walls that dress in a sheep's clothing. Seek us wherever you find your podcasts. Or consider contributing to the community on Instagram, Reddit or X. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. I have a supersized episode for you today, but first, a little meet cute about how I learned about this incredibly addictive story. I was wearing one of my official True Crime Feed t-shirts to dance aerobics class, and a gal I've seen in class but never talked to saw my shirt, approached me, and we started talking True Crime podcasts. She told me about this series that covers the wild story of a guy pretending to be a doctor with a British accent. I went home and proceeded to binge all nine episodes and the two update episodes in less than 24 hours. See, this is just one of the many benefits of sporting your very own official true crime feed apparel, graphically designed by yours truly. Go to the truecrimefeed.com slash merch for hoodies, t-shirts, tanks, and more. Perfect for conversation starters so that you too may have your very own true crime meet cute, just like me. I gotta plug the merch because my newsletter is going to be a little light on the visual aids from this particular story. Images of all the people involved in this case have been scrubbed from the internet, which makes sense when you hear more. Um, Instead, I have a link to one of my favorite books about honing your survival skills to protect yourself from violence, plus some further reading, interesting links to articles on the phenomenon of faking accents, in particular British ones. I even came across a story of a Texas gal that woke up from a coma and started speaking in a British accent. It was nuts. So all of these goodies will be in my newsletter this week, plus links to my top three power ranking. Now, enough with the shop talk. Let's get to the tea and crumpets. We are talking about Something Was Wrong Season 9. They don't title their series, so we'll call it Who the Cuss is Artie? Something Was Wrong has been on my radar for a while. I tried a few episodes from earlier seasons and just couldn't get into it. And I've also read a lot of critiques about this show's more current seasons going too far, exploiting more extreme traumatic cases for entertainment purposes. But after that personal recommendation, I got hooked on season nine. It's regarded as one of the better seasons of the Something Was Wrong podcast. This show isn't like many other true crime pods that I consume. It doesn't have that sleek, high gloss sound design. It has much more of a pared down homemade feel. 
They let the tape run as the victims recount their stories with the host, Tiffany Reese, chiming in for context. Even the opening theme music, I was totally side-eyeing at first, but then three episodes in, I'm singing along at the top of my lungs and imagining various artist interpretations. Jack Black would crush this song. You think you know me, you don't know me. I'll save the rest for our podcast theme song karaoke night. For now, let's begin our story. First, we meet Danielle. She works at a startup, has her MBA, is also an entrepreneur, and does consulting work. Danielle is close with her family, and she is a bright, successful gal looking for love in Southern California. Danielle meets Artie on a dating app. She is impressed with his credentials. He's a UK native, Oxford University graduate who is now in med school at UCLA. She swipes right. They meet at a car show with some friends and hit it off. Although she is a little hesitant to get serious with him because she's 30 and looking to settle down and he's only 25. But Artie assures Danielle they want the same things. He may be younger, but he's had to grow up fast. Artie told Danielle all about his life in England how he was adopted by a very wealthy family. He graduated high school at age 16 and then enlisted in the British Army, where he saw and carried out many acts of violence in the War on Terror. After completing his service, he decides to follow in his mother's footsteps and becomes a surgeon. He enrolls in a medical program at UCLA. Unfortunately, Artie is so busy with school and volunteering with Doctors Without Borders, he can't make it back to England to visit with family. Danielle is on the fence about him, but the more she learns about his impressive background, the more she convinces herself that Artie is the kind of person she should settle down with. She even becomes close with his mom via email. Artie will also casually flash some bank statements at her, showing that his mom wired $10 million into his account. But he still needs Danielle's help to pay for things because his money is being tied up overseas, paying for a property in England that he inherited from his brother, who was tragically killed on a business trip in Hong Kong, and now Artie can't bring himself to sell this property and wants to keep it exactly how it is in honor of his brother, okay? Ugh. I'll say here that we are hearing all of these ridiculous arty lies at once, and they sound so obvious, but we need to remember that all of this unfolds for Danielle over the course of nine years. So it's easier to ignore the red flags when they are coming at you in a slow trickle, like this one. Danielle has a longtime male best friend named Jay, and one night while Artie was at his <coughs> residency, Danielle was messaging back and forth with Jay, and then she gets a text from Artie asking, Who's Jay? What? That is so weird. Danielle never told Artie about Jay because he already had displayed early signs of jealousy, and she didn't want to start a fight. How did Artie know about Jay, and that she was currently in contact with him? Artie explained to Danielle he simply had psychic abilities. That's how he knew stuff about her. It definitely wasn't from stalking her and cloning her phone and logging into all of her accounts, okay? Danielle believes Artie, and she starts distancing herself from Jay and her old friends. She also ignored this very scathing tidbit she was confronted with next. 
A family friend worked with a gal who was dating a guy online. This gal showed pictures of her prospective suitor to the coworkers. Shocker, it was Artie. When the gal asked Artie if he had a girlfriend, he replied, nope, I'm perfectly single. Danielle hears about this, confronts Artie, but he downplays the incident as harmless flirting. But now Danielle's family is sus. Danielle is struggling. She does her best to keep the peace and be the best girlfriend she can be. She's supporting him as he's working this grueling schedule trying to become an orthopedic surgeon. He tells her all about his patients, procedures, and coworkers. Danielle even bakes treats for Artie to bring to work. Meanwhile, Danielle's family is taking a closer look into Artie. They contact a friend who happens to be an orthopedic surgeon at the UCLA Medical Center. Neither he or anyone else in his unit has heard of Artie. The family confront Danielle with this evidence. How in the world is Artie going to spin zone his way out of this one? That's got to be it, right? Uh, wrong. Artie claims he has to go by a different identity to protect his anonymity because he comes from such a rich family and also possible war crimes he was involved with, I guess. Ugh, Danielle sides with Artie and doesn't talk to her family for two years. Instead, she gets a tattoo of Artie's name to prove her loyalty. And then Danielle gets pregnant. She is struggling. She needs help. She finally makes amends with her family and they agree not to say anything negative about Artie and to help her with childcare. Because Artie is so busy with work, he can't even stay the first night after the baby is born. Then one day, Artie returns home from work unexpectedly, all disheveled in sweatpants. He claims he got carjacked. They recover the vehicle, but he needs to go down to the police station for questioning. The detective wants to speak to Danielle as well. Kind of weird, but whatever. The detective tells Danielle that he thinks she is the victim of fraud and that Artie isn't who she thinks he is. Oh, and also, by the way, when the officer talked to Artie alone, he didn't have a British accent. Oh, you guys, Danielle ignores this red flag too. I can't quite wrap my head around it. She must have been so demoralized and exhausted at this point and just feels resigned that she's trapped with this guy now that they have a daughter together. Speaking of Danielle's daughter, she's having her big first birthday bash at Chuck E. Cheese, aka a casino for children that serves rat pizza. Things start off okay. There's always palpable tension anytime Danielle's family and Artie are in the same room. Artie makes a comment about his work and Danielle's stepfather, who is in poor health and hooked up to oxygen, asks Artie, where exactly do you work? Artie answers, UCLA Medical Center. And the stepfather snaps back, no you don't. This sets Artie off. He gets belligerent, threatens to beat up the wheezing step gramps, and demands that Danielle's family leave the party. Danielle begs and pleads with Artie to stop causing a scene. She manages to calm him down. Luckily, there's no physical violence at the Chuck E. Cheese that day, but in the future made-for-TV movie, I kind of hope they exaggerate this incident strictly for entertainment purposes. I want to see that animatronic cowboy dog Jasper T. Jowls pizza slap Artie. Call me, Peacock. I'll help adapt the story for TV. Fast forward another five years, Danielle is still with Artie. 
She is resound to her crummy life. She lets him control everything in order to keep the peace. He goes out all the time, late into the night, if he even comes home at all. She works and raises the daughter and manages the household. They have only been intimate twice in the last six years, and it's been three years since anything romantic. Artie and Danielle are essentially roommates, and pretty rubbish ones at that. Anytime she mentions the idea of an amicable separation, he threatens her with violence, blackmail, and taking their daughter away. Danielle feels like this is just how her life is going to go on forever. Until one day, Artie, who never seems interested in doing any fatherly activities with their daughter, he tells Danielle he's going to take their now six-year-old out for a play date. Apparently, he had made friends with a fellow dad while out late one night playing poker. This guy's married and has a couple of kids around the same age as Artie and Danielle's kid. So Artie goes and meets up with them, and Danielle doesn't think much of it. And Artie continues to meet up for more play dates. Again, no alarms going off. Then one day, Danielle is visiting her family, and they sit her down intervention style. Danielle's dad asks her, Has Artie mentioned to you he's been meeting up with a couple for playdates? Danielle is confused. Yeah, why? Well, that couple is on their way over here now. You're going to want to hear what they have to say. Dude, what they have to say is so juicy. But we can't just go all the way to Flavortown immediately. We need to get acquainted with the other couple, Kenji and Darcy. Kenji meets his future wife, Darcy, years ago through mutual friends, back when they were broke college students. They have a great marriage and two beautiful children, all living the happy life in Manhattan Beach, California. But then things start to crack. They are in the midst of buying their dream house, and a bulk of their savings is being tied up in escrow during this process. It's putting a lot of stress on things. In addition to being cash-strapped, Darcy really wants to have a third child. Kenji is feeling the pressure, being the sole provider, and working all the time. He doesn't have the energy to have another kid. So this continues to be a point of contention for them. Darcy likes to blow off some steam by going out every couple of weeks with her friends. One night, Darcy returns home from the local dive bar and mentions to Kenji that she met a very impressive gentleman at the bar. He's a surgeon with the most distinguished British accent. Dun dun dun! And Darcy goes from the occasional night out every few weeks to going out four times a week, late into the night, well past the bar closing time. She mentions that Artie is sometimes at the bar, but she always claims she's just there hanging out with her gal pals. Then we get to the section of the story I'm going to call Darcy is Bad with Technology. On one occasion while Darcy is out and Kenji is home with the kids, he's playing with his daughter on her iPad and they are using the photo app. He is seeing some weird photo thumbnails out of the corner of his eye. Kenji waits until he's alone and inspects the photos more closely. They are topless and nudie, sexually suggestive photos of his wife, Darcy. She didn't realize that when she set up the iPads for her kids using her Apple ID, she was logged in via the iCloud, and so all photos, emails, messages were shared across all devices. I know, Darcy, right? Apple iCloud is complicated to use. 
She may have accidentally shared these nudes with her kids, but she certainly never shared them with her husband, Kenji. He had a sinking feeling that she was sharing these with somebody else. Kenji's suspicions were confirmed when Darcy went out one night and left her Apple Watch behind, which again was synced to her phone, and her watch kept blowing up with text message alerts. Kenji's curiosity got the better of him, and he saw lurid exchanges between Darcy and Artie, including one message from Darcy saying, We've been having so much sex, one of us is going to get pregnant! Kenji confronts Darcy, and she comes clean. And then she insists Kenji should be happy for her. She hit the jackpot! Artie is a rich surgeon with an English accent who comes from a family who are practically billionaires. He has multiple sports cars and properties all around Manhattan Beach. And he's in love with Darcy and wants to give her a third child. This is a dream come true for her. Kenji is sus. He asks Darcy, how do you know all of this? Have you seen his houses? No. But Darcy claims Artie is always flashing $100 bills around at the bar, and he gave her a peek at his bank statement from Wells Fargo showing he had like $600 million in a checking account. Now Kenji is supersized sus. Who keeps $600 million in a Wells Fargo checking account? Side note, I have some opinions about Wells Fargo that will be discussed in a future episode, so stay tuned, buckled up, ready for that one. Getting back to Kenji, he asks Darcy what kind of car does Artie even drive? She admits it's an old beater. But so what? He's a private person who wants to live a happily ever after with Darcy. Kenji can't seem to snap his wife out of her trance. He does convince Darcy to go to couples counseling. At counseling, the therapist asks Kenji and Darcy on a scale from 1 to 10 how willing they are to work on the marriage. Kenji says he's at a 9. Darcy says she's at a 1. Not looking good. Then Darcy tells the therapist that she wants to pursue a relationship with Artie. She's already even met his daughter from his, quote, ex-fiance and wants to introduce her kids to Artie. The therapist and Kenji think this is a terrible idea. She advises that their young kids need time to process their parents separating before they are introduced to a new man. So just to give you a timeline, I think it's like November 2019 at this point during a therapy session, and Kenji insists that she waits until like June, but the longest Darcy is willing to hold off is April 2020. Kenji and the therapist both suspect she is being pressured by Artie. Okay, and I'll say here a little tidbit that you find out in the update episodes, somewhere in the middle of the separation process from Kenji, Darcy gets pregnant with Artie's baby. It happens really fast. In fact, in her online baby registry, people are congratulating Kenji and Darcy. They leave this whole tidbit out during the original series. It would have helped me understand Darcy's decisions a little better, because boy, oh boy, she really does some things that, let's say, are hard to root for. Like ignoring ginormous red flags, so behemoth you could see them from outer space. For example... One night, Darcy goes out partying with Artie and a girlfriend at the local dive bar, and Artie gets plastered. He can barely walk, let alone drive. So Darcy and her friend insist on giving him a ride home. He directs them down a bunch of random side streets around Manhattan Beach. They drive around in circles for hours. And even when he begins to sober up a little, he still can't remember his address. 
And finally, he directs Darcy and her friend to drive him back to the bar so he can just sleep in his car until he's sober enough to drive home. Darcy relays this incident to Kenji and asks if he thinks it's weird. Yes, yes he does, Darcy. Kenji is worried Darcy will remain under Artie's spell unless he puts a stop to it. He's already done his own digging on Artie, including hiring a private investigator who found out Artie isn't the guy's real name. Instead, he learns his legal name and also that he was a defendant in a court case for domestic violence against a woman named Tammy. Kenji also found out that not his real name, Artie, once worked a job as a web designer and was co-workers with, of all people, Darcy's brother. Except Artie didn't have a British accent at the time. Instead, he spoke fluent Spanish and threatened to hold the company website hostage until they met his demands and was fired. Cool. Kenji had presented all of this evidence to Darcy, but she doubled down and gets a tattoo of Artie's name instead. However, Darcy does admit that Artie has been getting violent, throwing things around, hurting her cat, and physically assaulting Darcy. She gets a temporary emergency restraining order, but refuses to press further charges. Kenji is terrified at this point because some of these domestic incidents are happening while his kids are in her care. He really needs outside help at this point. Perhaps he can reach out to Artie's ex-fiancee, Danielle, the mother of Artie's child. Kenji is hesitant to reach out directly to her, so instead he contacts one of Danielle's sister who lives on the East Coast. He is tentative when he first speaks to Danielle's sister. Kenji explains his precarious situation and expresses his misgivings about Artie. But before he can finish explaining, she jumps in and says, Dude, me and my family have been dealing with that jabroni for years. They hatch a plan to get Darcy and Danielle together and hopefully put a stop to that flim flammer Artie once and for all. That brings us back to the day Danielle is at her father's house waiting for Artie's playdate parents to arrive. Danielle finds out that Artie has been living a double life. She learns his real name, that he's not from England, most likely from Mexico. He had a previous domestic violent incident and also a girlfriend named Darcy. Danielle's family has also arranged for private security so she can leave Artie safely and stay with family until she gets on her feet. She's finally free and ready to leave. Darcy isn't so sure. She feels bad for Artie. Yes, he's been lying about being still technically together with Danielle, but they haven't been intimate in three years. Maybe with Danielle out of the picture, things will calm down. Spoiler alert, they don't. Darcy distracts Artie at her place while Danielle goes to their house and grabs all of her things. Artie's guns get confiscated because they violate his restraining order. And also, Danielle snags a briefcase of Artie's. Then Danielle serves him with a restraining order. Meanwhile, Kenji is pleading with Darcy to stop seeing Artie and follow through with her restraining order. If not for herself, for the safety of their kids. Darcy agrees, but she wants to serve the papers in person to get closure. She jokes, if I'm not back in a few hours, call the police. After being gone for six hours, no replies to phone calls, Kenji calls the police for a wellness check. Then he gets word that both Darcy and Artie have been arrested for a domestic dispute. They are in jail for the night. 
While they were being detained, Kenji calls Danielle to give her the news and offer his help recovering the car that's registered to her name that Artie's been using for the past few years. Danielle is down. Ugh, at this point when I was listening to the series, I was totally shipping Danielle and Kenji. But instead of catching romantic feelings, they developed something even better. A Goonies-level deep friendship. These two are about to discover a whole treasure trove of info when they repo, quote, Artie's car. They find a bunch of women's panties and Polaroids of naked ladies. They also find lots of pills, a cornucopia of opioids, steroids, tramadol, and Viagra. They find his phony hospital ID badge and some fake prop money. It looks totally legit at first glance, except when you see the words for film use only. Then they find a couple of court documents detailing restraining orders made against Artie by his wife, Tammy. Yeah, dude, whilst living with Danielle and raising his daughter, Artie manages to go out, woo another lady, marry her, get her pregnant, get divorced, and have a restraining order placed against him. That's how Danielle finds out that her daughter has a half-sister. You guys, this story just keeps getting more bonkers from here. It's a lot more sad, messed up, back and forth domestic violence incidents with Darcy and Artie. Kenji keeps getting dragged in and going to court. Danielle has to deal with a nasty judge who denies her restraining order, saying that her testimony wasn't believable. She's stuck in a long custody battle with Artie until we hear in an update that she is finally granted full custody. The court parts of this story are crazy. If you didn't think the legal system was abysmal enough and you're hungry for more, listening to these will give you a full belly of emotional damage. We also learned that Danielle created a website to help protect other women from falling for Artie. She posts pictures and his fake name, so he immediately comes up in a Google search. And she tries to protect herself by using an alternative name and email address when she creates the website. Unfortunately, she does have to submit her billing info. At this time, she has moved to a new undisclosed location and changed her phone number. Then one day out of the blue, while she's out shopping, Danielle gets a threatening text from Artie on her new phone. The message said something like, I know your new number and where you live. Take down the website now. Danielle plays dumb. Sorry, wrong number. Who this? But she is terrified. She immediately contacts the web hosting service. At first, they deny giving out her private info to Artie. But finally, they admit it and produce a subpoena that they were served asking for Danielle's information. She takes one look at it and can immediately tell that it's fake. There are grammatical errors. There's no law firm seal. Plus, they didn't notify Danielle first. The whole thing was insane. She literally had created a website detailing all the ways this person abused her. And the web host provided that abuser with her contact info. Two other highlights from the update episodes titled What Came Next Presents SWW S9 Updates. You hear a recording of Artie's real voice going off on Danielle, making horrendous threats. It's very disturbing. We also hear that Danielle has a new man and they even get to go on vacation to Hawaii. At one point, they take a break from the beach and wander into a burger bar. Danielle and her new boyfriend pull up a stool and spot Artie there on a date. Oh, so creepy. What a nightmare vacation. The only thing possibly worse was that time I dropped my muffaletta Italian sandwich at the beach. 
It was so awful, you guys. So yeah, Danielle, girl, I have been there. If you haven't listened to this one, check out season nine of Something Was Wrong and get back to me. This series is especially perfect for spirited debate. I'm sure you will have a lot of opinions. Maybe something like this has happened to you personally, or maybe you've been that supportive friend of someone who has a really bad picker when it comes to partners. Cases like this one are tricky, man. There are things that are clearly against the law, but really hard to prove. Domestic violence, blackmail, and direct verbal threats. There is also things that are super morally wrong, like faking a British accent with a person you're in a relationship with for nine years. Artie is obviously an extreme example, but people hide things all the time in relationships. Addictions, financial problems, cheating, and being a closeted Taylor Swift fan. What's the level of deception one has to commit before it's no longer informed consent? Unfortunately, the laws aren't going to prevent any of these shady situations, and it's up to us to be proactive. After consuming a lot of true crime, you now are aware of many red flags to look out for and pitfalls to avoid, but you still may be feeling a little freaked out. So I highly recommend the book, The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. It shows you how to hone your survival skills so you can help protect yourself from violence. Because I care about you deeply, dear listener, not just for the downloads. I need your recommendations for further true crime podcasts too. You can email those directly to me at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, <sighs> hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start, I want to plug former Reply All co-host PJ Vogt's new show, Search Engine. He's doing a two-part investigation about fentanyl, and I learned more from listening to 30 minutes of this podcast than any other reporting. While incredibly heartbreaking, this story still manages to have these moments of humor plus fascinating history. You are not going to want to miss the podcast Search Engine and their coverage about fentanyl. Now, without further ado, here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Believable, the Coco Berthaman story. Here's a synopsis. Coco Berthaman becomes internet famous by sharing her story of surviving sex trafficking as a young child growing up in Germany. She was sheltered and supported by families in Utah where her faith and fame intertwined. But in 2022, Coco was arrested for raising money for a fake cancer diagnosis, and people began to doubt everything she had ever said. Is her life story truly one big elaborate lie? Yeah, this one almost didn't stay on the ranking because the latest episode feels a little like a different show. 
What kept it in my top three was the access to interesting people and places. We go to an underground sewer city in Las Vegas, hear from a guy that goes on vigilante rescue missions to save children from trafficking rings, and raises boatloads of money in the process. We also hear from women who are legitimately former victims of sex trafficking and their opinions about Coco's claims. It felt a smidge detour filler, but the goalpost is still moving towards the ultimate answer of whether or not Coco is lying about everything. It's getting hard to believe believable the Coco Bertheman story. At the number two spot, we have Betrayal on the Bayou. Here's a summary from the show page. For almost two decades, DEA Special Agent Chad Scott ruled the streets just north of New Orleans. He controlled a network of snitches by convincing people he arrested to work for him as informants. Chad would stop at nothing to put drug dealers behind bars. His successes won awards at the DEA, but his willingness to bend the rules earned him a terrifying reputation on the streets. Some called him the golden boy, others called him the white devil. Investigators go over his career with a fine-tooth comb, asking the question, is Chad Scott the greatest DEA agent in the South, or is he a criminal? This jumped up a spot from last week. It's getting a whole lot more interesting. We get to hear about the DEA's investigation into Jay Prince, the co-founder of the Houston-based Rap-A-Lot Records, and other various members, including the guys from the Ghetto Boys, known for that song, Damn, It Feels Good to Be a Gangster. I love where this show is going and getting to hear directly from the key players involved. Keep bringing it, Betrayal on the Bayou. And at the number one spot, you already know, we have the girlfriends. Here's a reminder. It's 1995 and Carol Fisher is a high-flying divorcee looking for love in Las Vegas. It's slim pickings in the medical community she works in, but then Bob comes to town. Bob Bierenbaum is a plastic surgeon who flies planes and speaks several languages. Her mom loves that he's Jewish, but there's something off about him. He's perfect on paper, but quick to anger, and he never talks about his ex-wife, who, it turns out, is missing and presumed dead. In this riveting nine-part series, Carol Fisher uncovers the truth of Gail Katz's death, the systems that failed her, and all the girlfriends that brought her to justice. Ugh, just two episodes left. I never want this to end. Just when I think we've heard from everybody who could possibly have information. In this latest episode, we hear from the former nannies who took care of the child from Bob's second marriage. And we hear from the gal that dated Bob right after Gail disappeared. Plus, the case still keeps moving forward. I'm ready to go steady with the girlfriends. Now for my miss of the week. We have the Idaho Massacre. Here's a synopsis. On November 13th, 2022, four students from the University of Idaho are brutally stabbed to death in an off-campus house. After a lengthy investigation and a cross-country manhunt, a PhD student from a neighboring university is charged with the crimes. As it turns out, the 28-year-old was majoring in criminology, studying the behavior of killers like the ones he would later be accused of becoming. Did he use his skills to become a real-life Dexter? 
Were the Idaho victims his first or was a serial killer hiding in the midst? If you thought the King Road killings was cringe, this podcast is double cringe, plus accidentally calling your first grade teacher mom in front of the whole class. This podcast is more cringe than the time I played the ghost of Christmas present in my elementary school play of A Christmas Carol and did an original rap. Now hang on, Scrooge, we're taking a ride to see what we can't see. Ugh, bad. Just bad. I get that this case is gripping and we all want answers, but this one's real bad. It's just covering what we already know and getting some of the most basic facts wrong, plus tons of ads. I don't want to say that this feels like an outright money grab, but I will say Ebenezer Scrooge would be very proud of it. Haha, <laughs> no more talking. Down the podcast queue, trapdoor you go. Find out next week if the girlfriends will continue to rule the number one spot or if another show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue, Trapdoor. I will meet you here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation, especially Instagram where I am making some dank memes. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to listen to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding. I love a scandal. To watch the world burn and lose their minds after finding out the fine print eliminated another's entitlement. Or an ironic twist where a saint becomes a Satan. I especially love it when this involves those within the third sector. For years the greedy and evil have hidden behind the good name charity for too long. I myself a witness to these wrongdoings, decided to create a podcast to uproot their stories buried just a little too soon in the archive. Uncharitable is a narrative storytelling podcast about true crimes and questionable practices related to that third sector. So join me, host Odea, as I attempt to smoke out the walls that dress in a sheep's clothing. Seek us wherever you find your podcasts, or consider contributing to the community on Instagram, Reddit, or X.